know this, but um, President Obama will put out a, an annual sort of uh, playlist of music that he's appreciated over the year. I don't know if he hires somebody to do this, um, but he's, he's often got some decent taste in there. And uh, it, it's a mixture of, of songs um, that, that it's, it's neat to hear if it is his personal taste, what that is. Uh, I've always appreciated that about presidential history, just kind of learning these things um, about it. But what, what makes a playlist good? Or what makes an album good? You know, I think it, at least part of it for me, is that it actually has some emotional contour to it. Does that make sense? So it's, it's, it's got some highs and some lows. Too many ballads and you're just tired of crying. Too many like upbeat songs and you're like, can this guy get a real life or girl get a real life, right? So there needs to be some sort of a balance to it. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, Psalm 126, which is one of the Psalms of Ascent. Um, and I've said this before as I've preached on one of these Psalms in the past, but um, this is something like Israel's mixtape. This is something like Israel's playlist, that they have, have, have written and arranged these psalms inspired by God, how about that as a songwriter, to then sing on their way to worship. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 126 and finding just how great both the highs and lows of this song really are. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn uh, with me there. It's a real short psalm. We'll, we'll go from beginning to end here. Hear God's word this morning. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream that our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. They, they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the desert, in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we... We ask this morning that uh, this song, this psalm, would come to our hearts and, and bring about the beautiful growth to which it speaks. We pray that we would hear your voice. We pray that we would be found by you this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So this morning, Psalm 126 is all about this, all about this. You are made for joy. You're made for joy. You are made for joy. The Bible is all about that. In fact, we're told that we were created out of a joyful heart, that our sin lost that joy, especially from our experience. In Christ, that joy has been restored. And in the future hope of glory, joy will be the ring of forever. You're made for joy. But there's this terrible contradiction. You know what it is? 
Life is filled with sorrow. You're made for joy, but life is filled with sorrow. What gives? This psalm teaches us that we're made for joy. And yet you and I both know, and even the psalmist confesses, there's a grand contradiction with our experience in the so-called purpose of our life. So then how, how is our joy restored? First, we have to cultivate the memory of joy. Second, we have to pine for renewed joy. We have to cultivate and pine. We have to, we have to remember and hope for it in the future. So first, I think you probably saw it pretty straightforward. Verses 1 through 3. What we see in this song, as, as God's people are, are moving toward the temple, returning to worship, they're recalling a restoration that God has delivered them. Some scholars will, will say this is specific to Israel's return from exile. But many actually will argue that point and say, this is too big for that. And chances are, this, this, this was about another event. And at the very least, is likely intended to be um, a song that sort of transcends just a homecoming event of, of God's people. Where am I getting that? What we see toward, toward the end is, is not just this homecoming. Verse 6, it'll say, we'll go out for weeping, but we'll come back with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. We don't use that word very much. And then in the early part of the, of the psalm, we see we were like those who dream. So one scholar says, when you think about these phrases, these Hebrew phrases that are being used, it, it's not a simple, um, we lost it and now we found it. We lost it and we've been given an abundance more, right? It's like you're not just redeemed from slavery. You're now all of a sudden the master. You see how, how much greater um, this psalm is pointing to. So we have to cultivate this memory. And it's not just a memory. And this is why it can be applicable to our lives. It's not just a memory of God's people returning from exile. It's something so much more. It's big. It's like a dream. It's like a dream. Do you have one of these stories in your life when it's, you know, it's just too good to be true? Well, I have a really cheesy story for you this morning. When I first met Dory, who would one day be my wife, I, uh, we went on our first date. And, you know, I said something that was just weird. And I'm going to tell you what it was. But, but I think it might help you um, to think about how to, how to apply this. We, were, we, went to, we went out to lunch, and, and then we're on the way back. It's a rainy day, and I'm returning her to, uh, she lived in, in a sorority uh, house, and, and I'm sort of on the way back, and I'm about to drop her off. And, and, and I looked over at her, probably something cheesy was on the radio. I don't know what, what inspired this moment. And I said, Dory, what would you say to me if we never saw each other again? I don't know what that is. That, that, that sounds like something you, some Hollywood screenwriter would write for, um, you know, a 17-year-old who, who, who wants to be really excited about a, a potential love. I offer that to you, hopefully, uh, to make you laugh, but, but not to make you laugh, to help you connect with your life, a place where joy was so great. It, it left an indelible mark on your soul. 
my 32-year-old self is telling my 22-year-old self, that's what I was trying to say. Something was happening. And now I can look back at it. And I can begin to cultivate that for now. God's people must cultivate the memory of joy if they're ever going to be about joy. Eugene Peterson says, joy has a history. Did you get that? It is verified, repeated experience of those involved in what God is doing. It's verifiable. It's, it's historical. And what this then means, Christian, is that you cannot cultivate a memory of joy alone. I don't know how many of these per, uh, plural pronouns you saw, but there's several. We, us, our, them. Not, not, not one time is this memory of joy about me, myself, and I. If joy is in fact something that we can trace in history, it cannot be verified by us alone. So, in the contradictions of life, the sorrows of life, if we're actually going to cultivate a memory of joy, we can't do it alone. Because let me tell you what happens when you do it alone. You start chasing a memory. You catch the difference? When you cultivate a collective memory, when you cultivate a history, there's a certain effect that it'll have on you. Least of all, it'll, it'll, it'll be true because you didn't come up with it on your own. You, it's verifiable among those that were there. But we're tempted to go about this alone, and therefore we end up chasing a memory. You know what happens when you start chasing a memory? You become hopelessly nostalgic. Hopelessly nostalgic. You begin to put rose-colored glasses on something that was just not that great. And that doesn't sound terrible. But I will tell you that, and you know this, trying to puff up a past memory does not engender joy. A shared experience held together creates this joy. After all, the entire Bible before the printing press was an oral tradition. They're on the way to worship. And God is playing this song. Cultivate this memory of joy, especially in the seasons where joy is fleeting. You can't do it alone. You've got to do it together. Second, we have to pine for a renewed joy. So remember, you are made for joy, but there's this huge problem that's called life on this side of, of heaven, between the cross and heaven, between the tomb and heaven. And yet we're called to it. And, and the second way in which we actually become a joyful people is that we pine for a renewed form of it. Verse 4 through 6. Restore our fortunes, O God. Did you know that you can actually beg God for something? You can beg Him. In life's contradictions of, of pain and disappointment and, and fear and anxiety... If you haven't, uh, you will be tempted to quit. You will. You will be absolutely tempted to quit. You will be, and what I mean is you will quit trying to pursue this life of joy that he's called you into. It, it can come in the form of self-pity. It can become in the form of other people's pitying you. Um, 
You can just get worn out. But the psalmist commands, inspired by God, after all, that we are to beg of him to restore to us that salvation. Restore to us his fortunes. I had an insert um, placed in your, in your bulletin, and it's that famous hymn, How Firm a Foundation. I don't know if you've seen it um, in your bulletin there. But King David does something for us that, that I was inspired to, to give you all this to take home with you. In Psalm 51, what does David write after he's confessing this terrible sin? Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me. Uphold me with a willing spirit. While we're called to, to want, to beg God to restore his fortunes, we'll be tempted to back away. We'll be tempted to, to just move on, to, to go about life trying to purchase joy. There's this powerful image um, in the second part of the, of the, of the psalm, and it, it's, it talks about this quality of restoration. Streams in the Negev. The Negev, as, as you either can imagine or have heard yourself, is, is an arid wasteland south of Israel. It's, it's a desert. And, and like any and all desert, they, they have been baked dry by the sun, by the elements. And every once in a while, a very long while, the baked crevices and channels and, and, and networks of, of, of paths will become flash-flooded rivers when the rain comes. So not only is the psalmist begging that God's mercy would return, that this joy of their, of, excuse me, his salvation would come back, he's even asking that it would come back pretty dramatically, that it would happen in the ways that, that, that almost never happened rain would flood the rivers, excuse me, the desert, bringing about an immediate, immediate blossoming, life. He's asking for that. And I wanted to give you that um, hymn. Just as you read that, you can see and be reminded that even as we pursue this together, that may his joy return to us. See, there's a proper place uh, to beg God. And I know it sounds strange and and, and, but, but there really is, and it's really important that we understand that. Because most of us will, will actually, instead of, of, of really wanting it, because after all, if you want something and don't get it, you're, you're left hanging, right? You're, you're left with disappointment, even despair. So we, so we develop this, this coping mechanism called fake laughing, called, called nervous giggles. Um, and, and it's very superficial, and we all do this. But, but some of the ways that... that Instead of actually being disappointed by not having the joy that we most want and being honest with God about that, we, we settle for, for just simply trying to numb the nerve endings of our lives. We try to depersonalize relationships, and then we try to lighten the load of boredom. Guys, when we, when we settle for, for not the true joy that we've been called for, we, the only way to cope then is to cut off the, the, what's real about you. And then, and then after you're left with a black and white movie that was designed for 4K vivid living, you have to go and spend your way to joy. 
perhaps literally, it doesn't have to be literally, but what I'm trying to say is you try to create it artificially. And it never, never works. So joy happens. We're called to it. The sorrows of life keep us from it. By cultivating a collective memory of joy. That time when life was was sweet. God was at work. And pining for him to return. Desperate for him to bring about the waters of his grace into our lives. We must beg him for this. I'm going to end in a, in a strange way. I, I would normally try to close it um, connected to this, but I, I want to make a couple of observations um, as, as, as you look at this psalm and as you leave with this, with this psalm. And the first is that there are two paces for joy. There's, there are two paces. I don't, the Negev is, is, is a pretty dramatic restoration, right? This is many people who, who have never known God and, and perhaps have, have lived a life uh, um, very far from him. And then when, when, when God, through Jesus and his grace, shows up in their life, it, it's a really dramatic show. It's like these waters rushing into the Negev. And, I, and that is for some. He did part the Red Sea. He did raise Jesus from the dead. There are moments of, of this invasion of grace that is so palpable that he is about. But Christian, as you well know, it's gradual for most. And the gradual reality of this joy being uh, cultivated in your life happens this way. Through weeping. There's a torrent that, that, that his rain would bring in the desert. And then there are the tears of those who are pining for it that aren't getting it. And it's very powerful. At the end of this passage, um, it's kind of hard to bring out. But, but the psalmist, is, he's, he's doubling these verbs. What does that matter? When you repeat something over and over, um, it means you want, you want this to happen. It's going to happen. And where he says it here is, you, he goes out with weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home. This shall come and goes out weeping have been doubled. Have been doubled. Cry, cry. Joy, joy. You see, life apart from God pursues a life where sorrows would fade away, right? If we just make it through the hard time, we'll finally, some point, we'll, Christmas will come and I'll get my grandmother's stuffing, right? If I can just push through, I'll get joy on the other side. But for Christians, there's a virtue in our tears. There is an actual purpose. They actually begin to irrigate the dry, desert, barren lands of our lives. So what the psalmist is saying by, by doubling these verbs twice over is to say, your tears produce joy. So there's two paces. For some, it's sudden. And for most of us, it's gradual. And many of you have, I, I don't know what either physical, emotional, or, or even within your family or with, within your friends, there, there is suffering in your life. There's pain. Maybe some of you have had chronic pain your entire life. And, you, and you've been crying the tears in the Negev for years. But by God's grace, instead of asking the question, why, Lord, you begin to say, if the person who runs the universe is willing to weep his way to the cross, 
I know that my tears are not in vain. So you're made for joy. We have to cultivate this collective memory of it. We have to pine for a renewed version of it, risk wanting something so much that not getting it sounds terrible. Because in this one probable pace of grace in your life, gradually, the tears of your eyes will become the irrigation in the soul of your heart. Two marks of joy. Two paces, two marks. And this is where we'll, we'll close, close down. There are two marks of joy in the, in the pilgrim and the Christian. And it's laughter and it's weeping. We were filled with laughter. Verse 3, we were made glad. We're made glad. Jesus' first miracle in John chapter 2 was to show that he is a God about festival joy. He, he, he makes a good party the best party. He is about this light-hearted reality that you are made for joy. So Christian, are you do you laugh? Do you laugh at yourself? Do you and I'm not talking about laughs of derision, I'm not talking about mocking laugh. I'm talking about just man, I make mistakes and that's funny. My friends make mistakes and that's funny to me as well. There is a light-heartedness about the follower of Jesus. How are you doing with laughter? How are you doing with that? And the second mark is weeping. Why is our Savior crying all the time? Why? Because He's perfect. And perfect people cry. There's two reasons. There's a renewed sensitivity for a Christian. Instead of throwing your hands up saying, oh, that's just how the world works, all of a sudden you, you, you have a compassion that you've never had. You begin to see people, and you begin to see that they're not living up to what God has for them, either by their own uh, selfish ambition or by what the world has thrown at them. I don't know. But, but there is a certain sadness, a certain weeping, certain irrigation that comes, right? It doesn't seem joyful when we see other people. This is what Jesus brought Jesus to tears. You see, none of us have the, are, are as sensitive as him. He, he was more loving and compassionate. He was sensitive to God's heart. He had higher aspirations for the people than we do. And the more perfect you get, Christian, the more you're going to weep. Are you crying? Are you crying? And finally, tears flow from from repentance. There's tears of repentance. You see, before Christ, we basically believe that God loves us because we're good. We basically believe that the gospel is about me living and dying for God. That, that's, what, that's what the moralist believes. That's what we're all tempted to believe. But the Christian, the one who follows Christ, who has received the good news of Jesus, knows that that is, that is far from true. I'm not loved because I'm good. God's love makes me good. Holiness comes as a result of His goodness. He lives the life I should have lived. He dies the death I should have died. My life is a gift. My life is grace. You see, and then, and then all of a sudden you're not nearly as defensive. Then all of a sudden when, when, when you see a flaw about yourself, you're not put off by it. You're not disgusted by it. 
Because you understand that, that I'm not loved because I'm good. I'm not loved because I can do this or I can do that or I can't this or that. But I'm loved by God himself. I have been substituted by his son, his track record for a failure. Christians, you were made for joy. You're made for joy. And yet life is full of these contradictions. Contradictions of sorrow, of pain, of frustration, of disappointment. So how do we find it? First, we have to cultivate a memory. We can't do this alone, right? Or else we, we fall in the ditch of, of nostalgic, gets us nowhere, no joy producing life. We have to cultivate this together. And then, then we have to renew. We have to pine for a renewal of this joy, risking everything. I, I encourage you to do this. Like, are, are you, when you ask God for something, mean it with all your heart. Mean it. Because then you open yourselves up for, for disappointment. You open yourselves up for relationship. And His waters, His grace of joy begins to, to flow in. And then when last we looked at the, the marks of joy, of laughter and weeping. We looked at the pace of joy. For some it's sudden, for most it's gradual. The king of heaven filled heaven with laughter. Filled it. Can you imagine him beaming across the heavens with such joy and gladness? And he left it. And for the joy set before him, he endured the scorn. He endured the shame. He received your sorrows to give you the gift of joy. Receive him this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that joy is not something we manufacture. It is not a formula as much as we'd like it to be. We pray that, Lord, it would be a product of your grace in our lives. Give us the courage and bravery to, to find disappointment and give us community to face the trials of life. Lord, like the Negev, Lord, would you just gush waters into it? Would you bring about such renewal in our lives that, that it's unfathomable? And even if you don't, use our tears. Use our disappointments. Don't let them be in vain, but Lord, let them be a part of your increasing joy in our life. We make this our prayer.